Right. Well, this morning we continue our study in 1 Corinthians. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11 this morning as Paul addresses the issue of marriage and divorce. Now, marriage in our society today is under great attack. The secular culture around us is working very hard to, to destroy the institution of marriage. Now, there are a lot of ways in which that is taking place, but the, the one place that it really began was with the, the installation of uh, no-fault divorce. No-fault divorce, which took place, it began back in 1969 when President Ronald Reagan actually signed it into uh, the law of, of California. And he later regretted doing that, but at the time he thought it was the thing to do. And no-fault divorce spread throughout the nation. And with that, the divorce rate skyrocketed. In fact, it doubled. Divorce rate doubled with the installation of no-fault divorce in our nation from uh, 1969 when, when Ronald Reagan first signed that into law in California to 1980, the divorce rate went up to from 20%, somewhere around 20% before that, up to 50% in 2000, or 1980, and today it's above that. It's above 50% in our nation. And so what has happened then is that marriage has been considered as kind of a commodity. With the installation of no-fault divorce, marriage has become really a commodity. Uh, you, can, you can take it, right? You can enter into marriage, and then next week, next month, two months from now, two years from now, if you get tired of marriage, well, hey, you can, nope, no problem. Just get rid of it. Just, just get out of the marriage relationship. And so it's a, now it's a commodity. It's a thing that we can take when we want and just let it go when we get tired of it. And, and with that, the institution of marriage has crumbled in many respects. Now, that's the secular worldview of marriage. The secular worldview of marriage sees marriage as a commodity to, to take and throw away at your own whim. But as Christians, we should have a very different view of marriage. We should have a Christian worldview, a biblical worldview of marriage. As Christians, Christians should always exhibit a high view of marriage and a low view of divorce. Christians should always, always exhibit a high view of marriage and a low view of divorce. And that's what we see here in these, these couple of passages here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11, and really on down through, uh, to, through verse 16 as well. But today we're focusing in on 10 and 11. So we're going to see that today. Now Paul here is addressing certain issues that are taking place within the church of Corinth there in the first century. We've addressed some of those already. He's been talking about sexual immorality and addressing the problems of sexual immorality that's taking place in the church. And he's told the church to be countercultural uh, when it comes to sexual immorality. Don't celebrate sexual immorality, but to, to get away from it, flee from sexual immorality. He's also addressed uh, sexual intimacy within the, the marriage relationship and how that's a good thing. And now he is moving to address another issue that's really coming out of that, 
uh, as we move on down in this text. Uh, really what he is, a well, let's, let's just read our text and then we'll, we'll get into it. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 and 11. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Amen. May the Lord add blessings to the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. And may he write its eternal truth on all our hearts. As we begin to look at this, this text this morning, Paul is dealing with two issues when it comes to marriage here in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First, there is the issue that some of the married believers are separating, apparently. That's what he's addressing here in verses 10 and 11. That's why he says, to the married to the married, that is to those who are married to believers. Two believers are married and they are, for some reason, separating. They are divorcing. They're at least considering divorce. Now, as we move down to 12, and we'll get into this next week, but he says, then to the rest, I say, in verse 12. Uh, there's another issue that's taking place there. And this is between this is marriage between believers and non-believers. So two issues that are, are causing uh, marriage to be broken, the covenant of marriage to be broken, and he's a, going to address both of them. I want to focus in on the first part, though, this morning where he is addressing the believers who are married. Uh, what's taking place apparently is that, as we looked at last week, there is that saying there in, in Corinth, that some of them are saying that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so this is kind of an idea that has been floating around. And so some of the, the married believers are taking that and they're, they're wanting to live by that. And so uh, they're ending marriage. They're breaking marital vows. They're uh, getting divorced in order to, you know, keep from being tempted. Right. Because it's not good for a man to to have relations with a woman. So they're they're getting divorced and they're separating. Now, Paul has already addressed that whole issue. And he says, no, in a marriage relation, sexual intimacy is a good thing. Um, but now he needs to take care of this issue where they're separating because of that. And that actually have two believers who are divorcing because of this idea that they shouldn't be sexually involved within the marriage. And Paul says uh, no, you don't need to do that. And so we're going to see his view then on the institution of marriage. Then as you go on through here, you, you begin, you get this little phrase here, not I, but the Lord, right? To the married, I give this charge. So this is a charge that Paul is delivering, but he says, this is not from me. This is not I, but this is from the Lord. Now, as we move down to verse 12, you see, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. What is Paul talking about there? Uh, that's a curious thing. In one instance, in one paragraph, he says, this is coming from the Lord. This is not me. This is the Lord. And the next paragraph, he says, this is me, not the Lord. What's he talking about here? Well, there have been those who have, have put it forward that, uh, or have suggested that what Paul is doing here, he is distinguishing between inspired uh, text, the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, he, he's 
operating there under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so he's saying this is coming through the inspiration of the Spirit. And then when he moves down to the next paragraph, he's saying, now this is my opinion. This is not coming through the inspiration of the Spirit, but this is my opinion. And there have been those who have put that forward and suggested that as a, a way to understand this. But that will not work. That understanding of Scripture will not work because then how do we know where Paul was uh, giving uh, Scripture according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? And when was he giving his opinion? Paul understood that he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He knew that. He knew as an apostle of Jesus Christ that God was using him to write Holy Scripture. And he knew, I believe he knew as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians, that he was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that every word that he was writing out to them was the very word of God. And so that's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying here is when he says, not I, but the Lord... He is making reference to specific teaching that Jesus Christ made when he walked this earth. He's making specific reference to uh, what Jesus Christ taught, specific teachings that Jesus Christ taught when he walked this earth during his earthly ministry. Now, at the time when Paul pens the letter to the, the Corinthians, this first letter to the Corinthians, none of the Gospels that we have today, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, none of them had been written yet. Uh, Mark was actually written probably um, a few years, about 10 years or so, after this letter to the Corinthians was written. Uh, so those had not been written down yet, but... There was still the tradition of, of what Jesus taught, the tradition of, of, of Jesus' earthly ministry. The apostles were there and they were testifying to the ministry of Jesus, what they heard him teach and preach as, as he walked this earth. And Paul spent months with the apostles, with Peter and James and John and, and the others. He had spent months with them learning what Jesus had taught and said during his earthly ministry. And most likely some of the guys there who were with him during some of his missionary journeys like Silas and Luke, they probably did witness at least part of Jesus' earthly ministry. And so what Paul is saying here when he says, I, what he's saying here when he says, not I, but the Lord, basically what he's saying to the Corinthians is he's saying, you remember what I taught you about what Jesus said? Remember when, when Jesus taught this and I explained it to you those two years I was there with you in Corinth and I taught you all, that, that all the teachings of Jesus. Remember what he said? And so he's making reference back to specific teachings of Jesus. And so then when he moves down to say, I, not the Lord, he's saying, now this is not coming from specific teachings that Jesus made, but this is still coming from me as an apostle of Jesus Christ with the full authority of an apostle. Uh, this is still inspired revelation. This is still coming from the Lord, but not from a specific teaching that Jesus taught. And so he's making that, that distinction here. And so as he's telling them, this is from the Lord. This is not me. This is from a specific teaching of the Lord. He is reminding them of something that Jesus taught. And from that, giving them this charge that, uh, they, should, that they should be reconciled. 
right? That they, they shouldn't pursue divorce, but uh, they should, in fact, be reconciled. You know, if they do choose to be uh, divided, if they do choose to be separated, then they're, they're to stay unmarried or else they are to be reconciled to their husband for the wives. And then the husbands, he says, should not divorce their wives. So as he is saying that, then it's good for us to go back to what Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. That's what Paul is referencing. So let's go back there and see what Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. Now, Jesus is recorded in, in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Uh, there are four places in which Jesus addresses marriage and divorce. Uh, the most worked out, the, the most detailed uh, of those accounts is in Matthew chapter 19, Matthew chapter 19, and uh, specifically verses 1 through 9, Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 9. And so uh, you can turn with me there and let's see what Jesus taught about marriage and divorce. Matthew chapter 19, verses nine, uh, 1 through 9. Now Jesus here has left Galilee and he's down in the region of Judea and he's teaching and preaching. And then some Pharisees come up in, in verse 3 and they come to test him by asking him a question. That is, they're, they're trying to catch him in some kind of mess up. They're trying to trip him up in his teaching. They're trying to cause conflict between Jesus and his disciples and Jesus with other people. They're trying to, to test him. They're trying to, 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 to mess him up and, and to kind of pull away some of his following. That's what they're doing here. And so these Pharisees test Jesus by asking him this question in verse 3. It is lawful. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Is it lawful for one to divorce his wife for any cause? Now, look at that word, that, that little term there, for any cause. That's important to understand what's going on here. That little phrase is very, very important. That little phrase, any cause, it is referencing a, a dispute that was going on, a debate that was going on in the first century uh, about uh, Jewish law. There were two schools of thought in, among the Jews. There was the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel. Shammai was kind of the conservative view of marriage and divorce, and Hillel was the liberal view of marriage and divorce. And there was this big conflict, imagine that, conflict between conservatives and liberals, right? Now, there was this great big conflict between these two schools. And this conflict all came out of Deuteronomy, the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 1, or excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. And if you want to, you can turn with me over there. Yes, we're going to flip a little bit here in the Bible. Uh, but Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. There's actually only two places in the Old Testament that uh, give any kind of regulation to divorce. There's a lot of talk about divorce, especially when it comes to, to talking about God uh, having the opportunity to divorce his wife, Israel. But there's only two places that give any kind of regulation of divorce. And this is one of the primary places, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. 
Notice what it says here. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then he finds no favor or she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. Notice that term there. Mark that term there. Some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her in her puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. So uh, here's the man divorcing his wife for some indecency. Now that little word there in the ESV, that indecency there in the, in the English translation is really two words in in the, the Hebrew language. It's the two words, the little, the little phrase, uh, eravat devar, eravat devar. And eravat devar, those two terms, there's, there's two, two words there. Eravat means nakedness, nakedness. It means to expose oneself. So nakedness devar, devar is matter or a thing. And so uh, here's what was taking place in this debate. What they were asking this question, what does eravat devar mean? What, how do you translate that? How do you understand that? The school of Shammai, they would put the emphasis on the eravat, the indecency, the immorality, the nakedness, the exposing oneself. And so Shammai... He said that the only justification for divorce was sexual immorality. If a man found some kind of sexual immorality in his wife, then he was commanded to divorce his wife. And so that's Shammai. Now, Hillel, on the other hand, he put the emphasis on Devar, the matter. And so he said any indecent matter. And so for Hillel, a man could divorce his wife for any matter. Anything that his wife did that displeased him, he could divorce her. In fact, he went so far as to say that a man could divorce his wife if she spoiled his supper. Right? So in fact, what, ultimately what Hillel divorce ended up being was pretty much divorce for, you know, no fault. I mean, he found fault. And his wife, but it could be any kind of fault, the slightest little thing. And he could divorce his wife, even if she she wasn't as pleasing in his eyes. Hillel said a man can divorce his wife. Now, understand that in this time period, especially in first century, uh, women, they couldn't divorce. Uh, it wasn't lawful for women to divorce. Now, there were ways that women could divorce their husbands. Uh, but it was more about, you know, putting pressure on officials to put pressure on the husband to give her a divorce. That's why Paul says uh, that wives shouldn't divorce their, shouldn't be separated from their husbands. They could separate, they could do things, uh, but it wasn't lawful really in that day for a woman to pursue a divorce. Only men could. But in the school of Hillel, a man could divorce his wife for any cause. And so we come back to this passage in Matthew chapter 19, where they ask him, uh, is it lawful uh, for a man to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
And so these Pharisees, they were asking him, do you follow Hillel or Shammai? Now, the popular view of the day, honestly, was Hillel. Most people followed the school of Hillel because, hey, hey, we can get out of divorce easier through Hillel than we can Shammai. We can get out of marriage easier that way. And so uh, the most popular view of the day was the, the view of Hillel and the school of Hillel. And so Jesus has already, if you, you go back in Matthew, back to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has already uh, vocalized some uh, opinion about marriage and divorce. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he says that if a man divorces his wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, then he commits adultery. So they have some kind of idea that at the very least, Jesus falls in on the, the school of Shammai. So if he voices this view of Shammai, the school of Shammai, then at the very least, he's going to have a lot of people who follow Hillel who are going to just go away. They're, right? they're going to quit following him because they're going to have this disagreement and they're going to split them away from Jesus. And so they want to cause a disturbance here. They want to cause uh, uh, a conflict within the disciples of Jesus and pull some of those disciples away. Now, it's interesting, though, how Jesus answers this question. Uh, Jesus answers this question not by going to Deuteronomy 24.1. He answers this question by going back to the beginning, back to Genesis 1. One and two. Notice what he says there in verse four. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Jesus goes back to creation. He goes back to how God created man and woman and instituted marriage between man and woman. We notice several things here. First of all, Jesus addresses the issue of polygamy. Jesus said that God created them male and and female, not male and females, right? Male and female. He created one man for one woman. That's it. So this idea that you can just go get a wife and divorce her and go get another wife and divorce her and go get another wife and just, just swap around wives and all that kind of stuff, that's off the table. Jesus says he made them male and female, one man for one woman. And then look what he addresses. Then he goes into the covenant of marriage, the covenant of marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. That's coming from Genesis chapter two, verse 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Now, we talked about this last week, how this works out in the covenant of marriage. All right. A man shall leave his father and mother. That is that he sets aside all other familial relationships, all other relationships other than his relationship with God. All other relationships get set to aside and he cleaves. He holds fast to his wife and the wife holds fast to her husband. 
All other relationships are, are set down or pushed aside. They are, are uh, they're pushed aside. The priority, the priority is the relationship between husband and wife. When a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, that wife is his priority. It's like this, like we said last week, God, that's our number one relationship right there. That's our number one priority. He's priority over every relationship. But underneath God is our relationship with our spouse. It's our relationship with our spouse. Husbands, your wife should be number one on your relationships under God. After the husband and wife comes the children, comes other familial relationships, and then under those, every other relationship. So, men, your buddies don't take priority over your wives. Wives, your, 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 your buddies, your friends don't take priority over your husbands. Your priority is your relationship with your spouse, period. That's the priority. And then the, the marriage relationship, that covenant is consummated when the two become one flesh. There's a new, unique relationship that takes place when the two become one flesh. They become one physically in, in a sense. But as we talked about last week, sex is a multi-dimensional relationship. The two become spiritually one, uh, one flesh in, in a sense. They, be, they become united in spirit. They become one with one another. This is a new and a unique relationship that takes place. And it's a covenant under God. This is God who, is, who has brought this relationship Together. And then look what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. You see, marriage is not a civil union. Marriage, listen to me, marriage is not a civil union. It's not about what the governor says. It's not what the president says. It's not about what the legislators say. Marriage is before God. Husband and wife, when you, you join together, you made a commitment before God to love one another, cherish one another, to be with one another until death do you part. What God has put together, what God has joined together, let no one separate. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is that these Pharisees, they were asking the wrong question. These Pharisees were asking the absolute wrong question. They were asking, Jesus, how can we get out of marriage? How can we divorce? How can we get out of marriage? And Jesus says, what you should be asking is, how can I preserve my marriage? God's children should look to preserve marriage, not get out of marriage. How terrible for God's people to look for and search for ways to get out of the institution of marriage. God has a very high view of marriage. 
Therefore, God's people should have a high view of marriage. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. We should have a high view of marriage. Now, of course, the Pharisees, they don't like Jesus' answer. They, they, get what he's, they, they get what he's putting down, right? But they don't like it. They don't like it one bit. So they counter his argument with another argument. Notice what he says, what they say there in verse 7. They, uh, they said to him then, why then did Moses command one to give a, cert a certificate of divorce and send her away? Why did Moses command it? Notice that word there, command. They said Moses command. Back in verse uh, chapter 24 of Deuteronomy, verse 1, they said that was Moses commanding divorce for an indecency. However you want to define indecency, it is now a command to do that. And in fact, in the first century and, and through a, a good portion of, of uh, Jewish history, uh, it was seen as a command. Divorce was seen as a command, especially when it came to sexual immorality. The Talmud, which is a commentary of, on, the, on the Jewish law, on Torah, on the Old Testament, it states that this is the demeanor of a bad or evil man. In other words, this is what an evil man looks like. Who sees his wife going out into the street with her head uncovered, which was immoral in th that day, and spinning in the marketplace immodestly, and with her garment open from both sides, and bathing with men, and he ignores it. With regard to this kind of wife, it is a mitzvah, that is, it is a commandment by Torah law. That's the first five books of the Bible. It is a commandment by Torah law to divorce her, as it states, as it, sta as it is stated, because he has found some unseemly matter, some indecent matter in her. And he writes her a scroll of severance and gives it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And so you see the... the uh, the Jewish scholars of Jesus' day, they looked at that and they said, this is the command of Moses. This is the command from the law that if you find some unseemly matter, some indecency in your wife, it is a command. You must divorce your wife. It's a command. But it was also seen as a command in even Roman law. I mean, we think about the Corinthians. They're not in Judea, right? They're up in Corinth. They're in, in Greece. And, and so uh, what about them? Well, it was also a commandment in, in the Roman law as well. In fact, Roman law required a man, if he found his wife had committed adultery, it commanded that he divorce his wife or else he could actually be charged for pimping, Right? And so it was a command in Jewish law and Roman law for men to divorce their wives if they found her uh, to be sexually immoral. But notice what Jesus says. Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. So the Pharisee says, 
Moses commanded. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're reading it wrong. You're reading it wrong. You're not interpreting it right. Moses didn't command it. Moses allowed for it. Moses allowed for it. He made a concession. God made a concession for divorce because divorce was already happening. It was already taking place. And so God, by His grace, allows for this concession to, to, to somehow regulate the divorce. In fact, if you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, and you go on and you read that, and what you discover is that Moses is really, he's laying out a regulation to keep women from being abused. In verse 2, let's just pick up at verse 2, and if she goes out and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and if the latter man dies or who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again as his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. In other words, you can't use your wife as your property and you get tired of her and then you send her out with a divorce and then you let her go marry someone else. You've defamed her name. You said you found some indecency in her, uh, whether you did or you didn't. And then she goes out and then you're going to take her back in. You're just going to pass women around like they're property. Use them up like they're property. No, no, no. And so as a concession, Moses regulates divorce because it's already happening. It's a part of the fall. It's an unfortunate consequence of the fall. And so instead of just letting it go and letting men do their thing and use women like their property, Moses regulates it. Says you can't do that. You can't abuse women. And so... Jesus points out that this is not a command. This is a concession. This is due to to sin. This is a a part of sin. So we see here that what Jesus is saying is divorce is a a regretful consequence of the fall. Divorce is a regretful consequence of the fall. It's not something to, to rush into and to participate in, but it's something that is happening in our world. Because sin is in the world. And so God, through Moses, He regulated it to keep people from being abused by it. Divorce is a regretful consequence of the fall, not something to to rush into and to, to be a part of if absolutely possible. Then Jesus goes on and He concludes His argument with this final statement in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Notice what he says there. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, he gives an exception here, and marries another commits adultery. It is a sin to get a divorce, especially for the wrong reasons. 
Jesus here, he adds this little exception here, except for uh, the case of sexual immorality. Now, next week, we're going to talk about the, the biblical grounds for divorce. And so we're going to look at this a little bit closer. But really what Jesus is saying here is that Jesus' exception is for covenantal unfaithfulness. It's for covenantal unfaithfulness. When a spouse breaks the covenant, that, uh, uh, they, they break the covenant to leave and cleave and, and become one flesh. When they break that covenant, then it is now exception. It is lawful uh, for divorce. So he, he provides this exception for covenantal unfaithfulness. But look what Jesus is really saying here. Jesus, even in giving this exception, he's not saying this is a command. This is an alternative. This is an alternative. And ultimately, Jesus says this is a last resort. It's not a good alternative, right? It's not a command. It's a concession. And if you're going to get divorced, then it's absolute last resort. Jesus actually leaves the option here for forgiveness. For forgiveness to come in. And even in the case of sexual immorality, a spouse can be forgiven and the covenant of marriage can still continue. But only as a last resort should divorce ever even be considered. So for God's people, divorce should be an absolute, positively last resort. So I want to give three applications of Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce as we wind down here. Three applications that I want to point out from what we've heard Jesus teach about divorce and marriage. As God's children, we should share God's view of marriage. We must exhibit a high view of marriage. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should exhibit, we must exhibit a high view of marriage. We should never take marriage lightly. Never take marriage lightly. Marriage should be, never be treated as a commodity, something that we can quickly pick up and quickly discard at whatever whim we might like. We should always hold a high view of marriage. Marriage should be treated as it really is a covenantal bond before God between one woman and one man for a lifetime. As followers of Jesus Christ, as children of God, we must exhibit a high view of marriage. Second, as children of God, we must Resolve to always work to preserve marriage. We must resolve to always work to preserve marriage. Uh, divorce should always be a last resort. Let me tell you, dear friend, if you are married, you're going to have hard times. Now, there's probably some youngsters out there who are, are, are you know, you're, you're dating your, your loved one there and you're thinking, oh, he's just perfect or oh, she's just perfect. And, and oh, no, we're never going to have trouble. No, no, you will have trouble. Hard times will definitely come. They're, they will. When two sinners are together for more than 20 minutes, there's, 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 there's that ability for sin to come in. There's... 
ability, there's that opportunity for conflict to come in and cause a disturbance in that relationship. We are sinners and we sin against God and we sin against one another. Hard times in every marriage are inevitable. There's going to be arguments. There's going to be disputes. There's going to be uh, upsets. There's going to be, uh, op- you know, there's going to be occasions where your loved one who's just perfect in your eyes, they're going to sin against you. What are you going to do about it? When hard times come, are you going to run? Treat marriage like a commodity and just throw it away and run to the next person that you think is perfect? Are you going to stay and work it out? As followers of Jesus Christ, we should have a high view of marriage and we should always work to preserve the marital bond. We must work to preserve marriage. Third, we, when it happens, when it happens, we must always mourn divorce. When it happens, we must all, always mourn divorce. Divorce is an unfortunate consequence of living in a fallen world. It is. It's around us and it happens. But when it happens, we should never celebrate. I, I've seen people throw divorce parties celebrating their divorce. That's unchristian. We should never, ever celebrate divorce. We should always mourn divorce. It is a terrible thing. A tragic thing that is a consequence of living in this fallen, sin-filled world. Therefore, we should never celebrate divorce. Divorce is always a matter to mourn. As God's children... Christians should always, always exhibit a high view of marriage and a low view of divorce. Now, let me be clear on this because I want you to hear me. Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we should ever take a low view of those who have suffered divorce. Divorce is an unfortunate consequence of living in a sin-filled world. And at times, divorce will happen. And when it happens, uh, we don't look down upon those who who go through it, who who suffer through divorce. Never, ever, ever should we look down upon those who suffer through divorce. No more than we look down upon those who suffer through cancer. I mean, we hate cancer. We have a low view of cancer, but we don't have a low view of the cancer patient who is suffering through it. And we should never have a low view of someone who has to suffer through divorce. It's an unfortunate consequence of the fall, and it happens. And when it happens, we love those who suffer through it. We lift them up. We pick them up. We we encourage them, and we, we love them through the love of Jesus Christ. But as followers of Jesus Christ, as children of God, we should always have a high view of scripture, a high view of, of marriage. And I always see divorce as a tragic consequence of the fall. 
Always seeking to preserve our marriage, work out our marriage, seek counseling if we need to seek counseling, do whatever it takes to preserve marriage. And when divorce happens, we weep and we mourn and we look for the day that Christ will return and make all things new and divorce will be no more. We have a high view of marriage and a low view of divorce. Now maybe you're out there today and you're going through a hard time in your own marriage. You're you're suffering through some times. Maybe your spouse has been unfaithful. Maybe there's just conflict in the marriage. Whatever it is, whatever the issue is, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I want you to resolve to preserve your marriage. Do whatever it takes to work out the issues. Do whatever it takes to work out the conflict. Allow forgiveness to take place. Jesus Christ died to redeem you from sin, and He died to redeem your marriage from sin. And if you'll let Him, through His power, He will save your marriage. And if it happens that Divorce happens, then turn to Christ. Because he, he redeemed you. He saved you. He loves you. And He wants to pick you up. So turn to Christ. Maybe you're out there today and you're suffering through a bad marriage or you're just suffering You're going through a hard time, whether it's in your marriage or or out of your marriage, whatever it is. You're suffering through a hard time and you don't know how to deal with it. Maybe the, the reason you don't know how to handle it is because you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe the fact is that that you need to turn to Christ today and, and come into a relationship with Him. You want to know the first step to a happy marriage? Is to ground it in, in Jesus Christ. Let Jesus Christ be the Lord of your marriage. And He will give you a wonderful, happy marriage. So if today you don't know Jesus, let me just encourage you to turn to Jesus today. Trust in Him. He died to save you. If you'll just trust in Him, He will save you and He will bring you joy that surpasses all understanding. Will you trust Him today? Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we just come to you today and Lord, we recognize that we live in a world that devalues marriage. But Lord, in our society, let us be counter-cultural. Let us live counter-cultural lives. While While the secular world devalues marriage, Lord, let us exalt marriage. Let us lift up marriage. Let us always display a a high view of marriage. Let us always work to preserve marriage and show our our community, our world, the wonderful value of the covenant of marriage. Oh, Lord, and I pray today, if there's any out there who are listening in, and Lord, they're suffering, and really at the heart of their suffering is they don't have a relationship with you, then Lord, I just pray somehow, some way, you would open up their eyes to the truth. 
Let them know Jesus. Let them turn to Jesus today. This I pray in Christ's name. Amen.